Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Hear now God's Word. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. At the beginning of each church year, we have the privilege as well as the challenge of reflecting upon the advent of Jesus Christ. To remember who He is, to remember why He came and why He will come again. He is not only the reason for the season... He is the reason for everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And according to Scripture, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. He's first. So today I'm going to bring you a sermon that I preached several years ago. I reworked it a bit. A sermon that was the result of my reading and study of four prominent theologians and wordsmiths, uh, N.T. Wright, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Dorothy Sayers. Uh, They have articulated thoughts about the advent of Jesus that help us see and think about the power and the beauty of God's gracious gift of His Son to us. And so, combined with some of my own thoughts and organization here, I want to bring to you a sermon titled, The Cradle That Rocked the World. And so I open with a quote and an observation by G.K. Chesterton that says, The fun of Christmas is found in the seriousness of Christmas. And so let's find some of the fun by taking a serious look at another one of the advents of Jesus. We began the series last Lord's Day considering the first advent of Jesus to the earth by contemplating how big God is. We concluded that he is bigger than the biggest thing we can imagine uh, because, of course, he is omnipotent. He is above. He is outside of every created thing. He has the power to speak things into existence. In fact, one of his attributes, as we've said, is that he is indeed all-powerful. So God the Word, that is Jesus, we read, spoke the world into existence. What a simple yet profound statement that is. At the very first advent, at the creation, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he said, let there be a whole bunch of other things, and then all the other things that we see were. At the next advent of Jesus, which marks the beginning of the second creation, the star of Bethlehem appeared, and an act of communication announced that the human incarnation of the eternal Word, the light of the world, had in fact snuck in 
through the back door. Isaiah 9 prophesied, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Verse 6 of Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. So today, as we consider the next major advent of Jesus Christ, the next major advent to the earth, that is, his birth at Bethlehem, I want us to consider how small he was. In order to enter into our world and to do his work of rescue, he did so in a very unexpected manner. Bioethicist Nigel Cameron points to a significance of the incarnation that may be missed by many, what he calls the bioethics of Bethlehem. He says this, God took human form, and he took it not simply as a baby, but as the tiniest of all human beings, a mere biological speck, so small and so undeveloped that it could be mistaken for a laboratory artifact a research specimen, an object for human experimentation, but this speck was God, the complete genetic human organism in its primitive and undeveloped form was so much one of us as to bear the existence of the Creator. He dignified humanity by taking the form of this creature He had made in His image, And he did it at the most inauspicious and feeble point in the human life story. At the heart of the Christmas celebration lies the fact of all facts that God became a zygote. A zygote is the initial cell that is formed in fertilization. It is the beginning of human life. Behind Christmas lies what is known as the Annunciation. The Annunciation by Gabriel to Mary that she would be with child of the Holy Spirit. And so there was that moment, that instant when that began. Mary was the first to know. So the birth of Jesus reveals the incarnation to the rest of us, but it had already happened In that moment, and again, Mary's the first to know this, and her cousin Elizabeth's unborn baby, John, John the Baptist, was the first to bear witness to this fact. You recall that Elizabeth, who's expecting John, comes into the presence of Mary, who is expecting Jesus. And the Bible pulls the curtain back and tells us something happened that we would have no way of knowing. And it gives us really some important details here. Because it tells us that John the Baptist bore witness and that he leapt for joy in the womb of Elizabeth. And so a fetal response to the gospel that was first preached by an embryonic Jesus. Perhaps two or three weeks old. And so as we read the story of theology from the womb... 
We might also recall that there was, just incidentally, another contemporary who would in due time shake things up as well. We read in Galatians 1.15 that Saul of Tarsus was also set apart from his mother's womb. So the context of this Advent includes three unborn children in whose hands lay the destiny of humanity. And one of them was not only the smallest of humans, he was the creator of the cosmos. The word who spoke into existence all of time and space and the one who will one day be its judge Jesus is not only transcendent, He is imminent. He is present in all of His fullness. He is personal and present and like us and yet without sin. So let's back up to the early chapter of His story. From the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi, the Old Testament abounds with anticipation of the coming Messiah. The whole Old Testament was like Advent in that sense. Luke 24, 44-45, we've looked at this not too long ago, uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, and he says to his disciples, who don't know who he is yet, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. The Old Testament is the story of Advent, the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Numerous predictions fulfilled in detail in the New Testament related to his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his glory. And I'm going to run through some really fast. If you want the references for these after the service, I'll be happy to share them with you or email them to you. But just very quickly, these are things that the Old Testament spoke of that we find fulfilled in the New Testament about the Messiah. The seed of the woman, the line of Abraham, the line of Judah, line of David, virgin birth, uh, birthplace Bethlehem, forerunner uh, John the Baptist, escaped into Egypt, Herod kills the children, he's a king, he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a judge, he's called Emmanuel, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, ministry in Galilee, min- uh, a ministry of miracles, he bore the world's sins, he's ridiculed, a stumbling stone to the Jews. Rejected by his own people, a light to the Gentiles. He taught in parables, cleansed the temple, sold for thirty shekels, forsaken by his disciples, silent before accusers. His hands and feet are pierced, crucified with thieves. No bones would be broken. Soldiers gamble for his garments. Suffered, he suffered thirst on the cross. Vinegar is offered. He's scourged. He dies. He is for, his forsaken cry from Psalm 22. He committed himself to God. He's, he's buried in a rich man's tomb. His resurrection. 
His ascension. Seated at the right hand of God. Any reasonable person who examines these Old Testament prophecies in an objective manner must conclude that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, having been born in the Christian West, most of us have heard and seen portrayed many times the Christmas story, or what we call the Nativity. We see it on Christmas cards, or out in somebody's yard, or in front of a church, in a, in a Christmas play. And yet, it's easy to see something, even to see it many times, and still miss some of the important things that are present. If you try to point out something to a dog, the dog will often look at your finger instead of the thing you're pointing at. Um, This is frustrating, but it illustrates a natural mistake that we all make from time to time. It's a mistake that many people make when they read the Christmas story in Luke's Gospel. What do people know about Jesus' birth? Well, they see the manger as the centerpiece. But to concentrate on the manger is to forget why it was mentioned in the first place. And again, it's like the dog looking at the finger rather than the object. The mistake is to see only the little baby, which seems safe enough. But let me assure you, this baby is anything but safe. C.S. Lewis speaks of the one, the one grand miracle. He says, the Christian story is precisely the story of the one grand miracle, the Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated and eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him, It is precisely one great miracle, and if you take that away, then there is nothing specifically Christian left. He continues, Now, if one asks whether that central grand miracle in Christianity is itself probable or improbable, of course, quite clearly, you cannot be applying Hume's kind of probability. You cannot mean a probability based on statistics according to which the more often a thing happens, uh, more often a thing happened, the more likely it is to happen again. The more you get indigestion from eating a certain food, the more probable it is that if you eat it again, that you will again have indigestion. Certainly the incarnation cannot be probable in that sense. It is very often, uh, it is, uh, it is of its very nature to have happened only once. But then it is of the very nature of the history of the world to have happened only once. And if the incarnation happened at all, then it is the central chapter of history. It is impossible in the same way in which the whole of nature is, excuse me, it is improbable in the same way in which the whole of nature is improbable because it is, it is only there once 
and it will only happen once, so one must apply to it quite a different standard. Dorothy Sayers makes this excellent point then about the historicity of the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus. She says the Christian story starts off briskly in Matthew's account with a place and a date. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. St. Luke still more practically and prosaically pins the thing down by a reference to a piece of government finance. God, he says, was made man in the year when Caesar Augustus was taking a census in connection with a scheme of taxation. Similarly, we might date an event by saying that it took place in the year that Great Britain went off the gold standard. About 33 years later, we are informed God was executed for being a political nuisance under Pontius Pilate, much as we might say when Mr. Johnson Hicks was Home Secretary. It was as definite and concrete as that. And so Jesus came from outside the cosmos. He became a zygote. He became a baby. He's born in a stable in a little town of Bethlehem, and he did it all at a very specific time to accomplish his cosmic mission. But he would not remain obscure for long. In fact, from the very beginning, he was perceived to be a very great threat to the powers that be. Herod saw far more than a harmless baby, and he was more than a little concerned. And thus the effort to purge the world of this baby, this man, began in earnest. The world wouldn't be satisfied until this particular man was eliminated. And that's because while he was a man, he was far more than a man. He was a threat. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, uh, The Everlasting Man, points out that modern man thinks that man is an animal who began in a cave, what we call the caveman. The same modern man thinks that Christ was just another man. And so there is irony found in the birth of Jesus, and God seems to love such ironies. The Roman Empire had reached its apex, the greatest of human accomplishments, and we'll say more about Augustus Caesar in a moment, But Rome at this point was beginning to crumble. The conclusion was being drawn by many that there was no God, because if there had been a God, then certainly he would have intervened at this very moment. He would have moved to save the world. Well, of course, God was about to appear in human flesh, and he would do so in the most unexpected manner. In the Middle East, though, it was common for caves to be used as stables, particularly in the Bethlehem area. And thus, Chesterton observes, this sketch of human of the human story began in a cave. The cave which popular science associates with the caveman, and in which practical discovery has really found archaic drawings of animals. He's an artist. The second half of human history 
which was like a new creation of the world, also, he says, begins in a cave, the birth of Jesus. There is even a shadow of such a fancy in the fact that animals were again present, for it was a cave used as a stable by the mountaineers of the uplands about Bethlehem, who still drive their cattle into such holes and caverns at night. It was there uh, that a homeless couple had crept underground with the cattle when the doors of the crowded caravansary had been shut in their faces, and it was here beneath the very feet of the passers-by in a cellar under the very floor of the world, that Jesus Christ was born. But in that second creation, there was indeed something symbolical in the roots of the primeval rock of the horn, or the horns of the prehistoric herd. God also was a caveman, and also had traced strange shapes of creatures curiously colored upon the wall of the world, But the pictures that he made had come to life. And so God surprises the world with his subtlety. Luke mentions the manger because it was the manger which was the sign to the shepherds. It told them which baby they were looking for. And it showed them the angel knew what he was talking about. And it's because it's also important in giving the shepherds their news and their instructions And it's significant because it was the shepherds who were told who this child was. This child is the Savior. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. And the manger isn't important in itself, but it is a signpost. It is that pointing finger to the identity and the task of the baby boy that is lying in that manger. And so the shepherds summoned from the fields, like David the shepherd boy, was brought in from the fields to be anointed as king. They are made privy to this news so that Mary and Joseph, hearing it from this unexpected source, will have extra confirmation of what up until now had been their own secret. Luke has introduced the story by telling about Augustus Caesar. Way off in Rome, at the very height of his power, Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became the sole ruler of Rome, uh, of the Roman world, after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all of his rivals. The last to be destroyed was the famous Mark Antony, who committed suicide not long after his defeat at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C. Augustus returns to Uh, turned to the great Roman Republic. He turns it into an empire with himself as the head. And he proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world. Not that a politician would ever overstate his own importance, but he, declaring his dead adoptive father to be divine, portrayed himself as the Son of God. Poets wrote songs about the new era that had begun, so he had his press propaganda. Historians told the long story of Rome's rise to greatness, reaching its climax, obviously, with Augustus himself. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was its king, its lord. Increasingly, the eastern part of the empire, the people there, worshipped him 
as a god. Meanwhile, with this as the backdrop, far away in that same eastern frontier, a baby boy was born who would within a generation be hailed as the Son of God, whose followers would speak of him as the Savior and the Lord, whose arrival, they thought, had brought true justice and peace to the world. Jesus never stood before a Roman emperor, but at the climax of Luke's gospel, he did stand before his representative, Pontius Pilate. Luke certainly had that scene in mind as he tells his story about how the emperor in Rome decides to take a census of the entire domain and how this census brings Jesus to be born in the town which is linked to King David. Luke's point is clear that the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all of its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world. Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But within a century or so of his successor uh, or so his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to eliminate him and his followers. But let's make note. Just over three in over three just over three centuries the emperor himself declared himself to be a Christian. So when you see the manger on a card, or in a church, or in a school play, don't stop at the crib. See what it's pointing to. It's pointing to the explosive truth that the baby lying there is already being spoken of as the true king of the world. The rest of Luke's story, both in the gospel and later on in Acts, will tell how his kingdom comes. This little baby had not lost any of his power, and so when Jesus come, comes, his advent, his cradle, rocks the world. Revelation 11, 15-18 describes it this way. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the One who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Jesus wins. So what was so threatening about this little baby in Bethlehem? And I want to kind of shift gears just a little bit as we wrap up. Have you ever been afraid of the dark? Most of us have been, probably still are. Partly due to the unknown, partly due to ignorance, partly due to our imagination. I had to have the closet door closed in my bedroom when I was a kid because if I left it open, the shadow of the clothing in there, I could always see 
somebody or something. So I had to make sure that was all the way closed. We easily stumble in the dark. We feel uncertain and vulnerable in the dark. And we know that bad things happen in the dark, that evil is often nocturnal. In addition to physical darkness, there is also intellectual and moral and spiritual darkness. And while men are afraid of the physical darkness, there's another kind of darkness that they actually like. As the Gospel tells us, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so let's look at this from a different angle and ask, have you ever been afraid of the light? Why would we fear light? You see, fear of the darkness is a good thing, but fear of the light should alarm us. While exposure, exposure can be painful, it's usually helpful. Hiding is as old as Adam in the garden. Concealing our ignorance, our evil, our deceit, etc., is a veil of darkness that provides cover. Like the rest of the fallen world, we often view darkness as a friend. For example, I'll hear people often say, oh, I'm a private person, when what they really mean is, I'm a secret person. Everybody's a private person. We're not usually tempted to hide our good deeds, but we're quite stealthy when it comes to the evil that's in our lives. We can put on a show for everybody else, put on a smile, fake it. The Bible tells us that the whole world lies in darkness. So the world wants nothing to do with the light. In fact, the world fears the light. It fears the light for where there's light, there's no darkness, and there's no place to hide. This explains much that goes on not only in private lives, but also in the public and political realms. The world hates the light, for the light chases the darkness away. And thus, they hate Jesus. He threatens to expose the deeds of darkness. He said, I am the light of the world. He says this in a rather dark time in Israel's history. And remember, everything is about Jesus. In John 12, 46, Jesus tells us why he's coming to the world. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Notice he doesn't say, I have the light. Rather, he says, says, I have come as the light. And what does it mean to be a light? He answers this question in another place. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. At the beginning of his gospel, John writes, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. This means that Jesus is the source of life, the wellspring of being, For individuals and for nations, all of life comes from Jesus, stems from Jesus. And so if you want to live, if you really want to live, you must turn to the light, you must turn to Christ. He says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. That's a promise. Those who by grace believe in Jesus are given the light of life. 
Those who by grace believe in Jesus are no longer in darkness. Believe in me, Jesus says. And you know what else happens? Matthew 5, 16. We not only leave the darkness and share in his light, but he says that we also become light bearers. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so this tiny baby in this obscure cradle has rocked, indeed is rocking the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it was most appropriate that the messengers should give the news first to shepherds because Christ himself would be the good shepherd of his people. He would be born among common people in a low condition and would redeem men of every status and position. Set before us today for our meditation, your birth, for the sins of your people. May we never cease to marvel at the wonder of the Incarnation at your great condescension to in becoming man for us and for our salvation. May we, like these shepherds, make widely known what has been revealed concerning the child who was born in Bethlehem. May we continually keep in mind the reason Christ was born, that he came to die for the sins of his people and to subdue all of his and our enemies. May all these things never be commonplace to us, but may we always regard them with awe and reverence. Enable us to see with new eyes and to see deeply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis writes uh, regarding Jesus, He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, and down further still, to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. He is like a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. That would be you. Praise the Lord. And we come to his table to remember that that's what he came to do, to rescue us. Oh God of our hope, hear again the cry of the exiles, imprisoned in a dark land of gloom and despair, for we are often weak and fearful. Come among us with strength and healing. Look with pity upon your people and enable us to see the light of our Savior, to see the promised child who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Fill us with thanksgiving and the joy of your generosity and grace 
which is made known through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to forsake our own way and to gladly follow our Savior, for he always seeks our good, and may his will be our will. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight, for you are our faithful and covenant-keeping God. Bless now our feasting and our resting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to the King, immortal, invisible, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.